This is actually my second time teaching up here this summer, and the first time I had this really lovely introduction from Ian, who said very kind things about me, and this time they were like, you can just introduce yourself. <laughs> so I've arrived. <laughs> um, my name is Julia. I am on staff here at Eagle. I work in the next-gen department with Ian and Katie and Kathy, and we get to minister to the students and to your children, and it's really a privilege and an honor to be up here also being able to share with you and, and talk about the word and what's in store for today. So when I taught earlier this summer, I did not know that I would be able to teach again, but when I found out that I would be able to teach again, I knew what I wanted to do. And I knew, like we were in Genesis before, if you weren't here, we were in Genesis and we were talking about Abraham. And so I just thought like a, a, the next step, the next good fit, would be to talk about Exodus. Let's go from Genesis to Exodus. Let's just start working our way through the Old Testament and we'll all be Old Testament scholars by the end of it. And that was the idea. And I just started having things come together and, and I was excited about what was going to happen. And then I found out that Rob was leaving. And in the past, in the spirit of full disclosure, I have had issues with anxiety. And I share that because I know that I'm not alone. I know that I'm not alone. And so when I found out that Rob was leaving, everything sort of started to spiral into worry. And, I, and I'm sorry if I get choked up. This is just where I am right now. But I just started to worry. And it was like, what is the transition going to be like? What is my life going to be like? What is the next step? What is going to happen? And if you have struggled with anxiety, I say struggle like you have control over it. If you have had issues with anxiety in the past, you know that things tend to spiral out of control very quickly. And things just started to spiral. And anxiety was once explained to me like this. And uh, I was at the doctor and she was like, basically your body, when faced with anxiety, when faced with this uneasiness of mind, your body goes into fight or flight mode. It's this very instinctual thing. Your body is trying to help you retreat from whatever situation you find yourself in. So like back in the day, if you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, that anxiety, that fight or flight is gonna kick in and it's gonna give you what you need to get away. I don't know why I chose a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> I'm thinking about that. You're not gonna get away from a saber-toothed tiger. So I would just lay down and die in that case. But anyway, anyway, you get the idea. Your body goes into fight or flight mode and it sort of helps you escape. But with anxiety, when you have that uneasiness of mind, and we all have periods where there's, there's that unease in the mind. We all have those periods. And generally, we can pinpoint what it is that's causing that and sort of work around it or find the solution or see the end. But when you have issues with anxiety, you can't always see the cause. You can't always see the end. You can't always see. So your body is trying to help you get out of whatever is going on. But when there's nothing to get out of, it just sort of, things just get off and they just sort of spiral. And, uh, and I knew that this was coming, that this moment was coming and nothing was coming together. And it was just like icing on top of everything else. Like my life is out of control. Not really, it's not really out of control, but your mind is powerful and it tells you lies sometimes. But everything is just sort of spinning, and I don't know what I'm going to talk about, and it's just going to be awful. And a couple of weeks ago, I actually had dinner with my dad, and I just sort of spilled everything onto him, and this is going on, and this is going on, and it just sort of like escalated. 
and I ended with, and I have to teach soon, and I don't know what I'm gonna say, and it's gonna bomb, and they're never gonna let me teach again, ever, anywhere, ever. And he was like, oh, my poor dad, was like, okay, <laughs> all right. And he was like, Julia, I feel like the Holy Spirit is generally involved in these things. And I was like, dang it, Dad, you're right. Um, and I, but I thought about that. I thought about that, that in the midst of all of this unfolding, of everything sort of feeling out of control, I hadn't really gotten away and gotten before the Lord and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And so the next day, actually, I was able to have this extended time with God of just getting away and being in the presence of God. And the goal was to figure out what in the heck I was gonna say up here, but that's not, that happened, but it's, it's not the only thing that happened. And right before I went into that time of just like being away and being alone with the Lord, I had a phone call from someone who was talking about, it was actually Katie Mezzo, and she was talking about Dark Day and what she was gonna share with the kids on Dark Day. And Dark Day is an event that evil kids do. It's a super fun thing. But she was talking about how she was going to talk about anxiety because it seems to be a recurring theme in the lives of our kids and in the lives of our students. And it seems to be a recurring theme in our society, anxiety. And she was talking about things that she wanted to share and she brought up 1 Peter 5, 7. And 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on him, him being the Lord, because he cares for you. And so we're talking about that, but that just stuck with me. And so when I went into this time of being alone with the Lord, that's the first passage I turned to. And I was reading through 1 Peter 5, 7. And it's cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And cares is what stuck out to me, cares. And it's not just this like, oh, I like you and you're cute and you're sweet and I really, I really care about you. It is a care. He is our shepherd. We are his responsibility. He cares for us. He cares for us. And in that moment, in that time, he was saying, do you realize that I care for you? That you are my responsibility? That your anxieties can be put on me and I can help you walk through this because I care for you. You're mine. And it changed my perspective. It changed where I was. It doesn't necessarily get rid of the physiological symptoms of anxiety, but it sure lifts the heart and it sure lifts the mind because the Lord comes beside us and says, give it to me. Give it to me because I'm here with you and I am here for you. And I think out of that because of that, and you might even be thinking, that's a, a, a TMI, Julia, you're sharing a lot. I'm sharing all of this because this is where I am right now. This is the truth that I know and that I'm currently holding on to. And I just think that in times of duress, we need to be reminded of who God is, who he truly is. Not this picture that we paint of him on a Sunday morning where we come in and we sing and then we leave after an hour. 
but who he is in times when we're alone and everything is falling apart and we don't know what's next. We need to know who he is. So we're still gonna be in Exodus because it's a cool book and there are a lot of good things that the Lord reveals about himself, but we're gonna go about it from a little bit of a different angle. So before we do, let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word, for the truth that you reveal to us, for who you are. Thank you for your love, thank you for your consistency, thank you for your presence, and most of all, thank you for the things that you have in store for our lives and that we're not alone. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds to the things that you wanna share today, and we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, amen. So, Exodus, that's where we're gonna be. Second book in the Bible. Um, and to give you a little bit of background before we dive in, because we're gonna be covering a lot of text today, and it's okay, because it's the Bible, and it's good. Uh, I wanna give you a little bit of a background. So if you were here the last time I spoke, it we were in Genesis, and I talked about Abraham, and God basically chooses Abraham as this figure as this point to start working through human history. He comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be yours to inherit and you're going to be a blessing to the nation. Abraham is like, cool, I don't even have a kid yet. So like that was the issue in Genesis. And he ends up having a son, um, Isaac. Isaac ends up having a son, Jacob. Jacob ends up having 12 sons, one of whom is Joseph. Joseph gets sold by his brothers because of jealousy. He gets sold into slavery and ends up in Egypt. And because of famine in the land and a bunch of different reasons, all of the other brothers end up in Egypt. They're reconciled. They're all living in Egypt together. It's cool, it's fun. But however, back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, it says, then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So this is coming, like we know this is coming back in Genesis. Abraham is probably not thinking about this coming and he's probably not talking to his kids like, hey guys, you're gonna end up in slavery because nobody's gonna think about that. We don't think about several years into the future, like what's going to affect our children's children's children, because we're thinking about the present. And in the present, Abraham was like, neat, I don't even have a kid. But in Exodus chapter one, we, see, we find ourselves in Egypt. So let's look at Exodus chapter one, verse one. It says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then it names all of the sons. Jump to verse five. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So this is where we find ourselves at the beginning of Exodus. And this is also where we find ourselves in sort of this fulfillment of what the Lord told Abraham back in Genesis. They're living in Egypt and they're multiplying, which causes 
a little bit of a problem. So let's look at verse eight. Let's jump to verse eight. And it says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So this new Pharaoh, basically what happens is this new Pharaoh rises up, doesn't know Joseph, doesn't know these people, has no idea why they're here. All he knows is that they're multiplying greatly and he sees them as a threat. And he thinks, okay, so if we go to war with enemies and they join up with our enemies, that's, that's not a great thing for us. So, as is prevalent in the course of human history, they, set, they subject them to slavery. That's his idea, like let's, let's put them to work. Let's make them slaves and keep them low and keep them ours so they can't join up with our enemies. Um, in verse 12, I don't think this is up there, I'll just read it to you. It says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the more they were, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. It wasn't squashing them. It wasn't taking care of the problem. So Pharaoh, because they, the Egyptians continue to be afraid of them, Pharaoh has to come up with a couple of ideas. So he comes up with a couple of various schemes. And his first scheme is basically he comes to the Hebrew midwives, and these would have been the women who would have gone to the Hebrew women to help them deliver their children. And he says, listen, when these, when these women have their children, if it's a male child, I want you to kill them. If it's a female child, she gets to live. And the midwives are like, cool. And in their hearts, in verse uh, 17 actually, it says the midwives feared God. So they hear this plan from Pharaoh and they're like, yeah, man, that's a great idea. And in real life, they don't do it. They don't do it and they come back to Pharaoh and they're like, sorry, man, these women have their babies so fast, we can't get there in time. So Pharaoh has to come up with a new idea. And his second idea is like, okay, that didn't work. Let's take all the male babies of the Hebrews, just throw them into the Nile. Let's just get rid of all the male babies. Any new male baby, throw it into the Nile. And that they had less control over. And that is actually where we get the story of Moses. And I hope that you're familiar with Moses. He's a pretty key Old Testament figure, and he's also a really cool dude. But because in the spirit of time, we don't have enough time to read through that whole story, the cliff notes are basically, Moses is born to Hebrew slaves. And his mother, who knows that he's gonna be thrown into the Nile, is like, maybe that's not a great idea. So she makes a basket puts Moses in the basket and basically sets him afloat on the Nile River. Just see what happens. Let's just see where this baby ends up. And his sister sort of follows the basket along. She like hides in the reeds and follows the basket. And the basket, ironically, ends up in the house, uh, in the area of Pharaoh's daughter's house. So Pharaoh's daughter, finds this Hebrew slave that should be dead by the order of her father, and instead she's like, look, a baby, it's mine. And she keeps him. 
And Moses' sister, because she's there, is like, hey, I bet you need somebody to nurse that baby. And she's like, actually, I do. And the girl's like, I know somebody. So Moses gets to be nursed by his own mother. And then he's sent back to Pharaoh's house, and he's raised in Pharaoh's house. And this is the very definition of God at work behind the scenes. Because we have this story of oppression going on, and then we have this side story of Moses, and we think, okay, this guy's gonna be significant because things, things are happening. He gets to grow up in Pharaoh's house. Um, so let's see what happens. Let's look at Exodus 2, verse 11. So this is when Moses is an adult, and it says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, what made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And then Pharaoh heard of it and sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered the flock. And when they came home to their father Ruel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah and she gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So it's not a secret to Moses that he's Hebrew. It's not a secret to him. He probably physically looks different than the Egyptians that he's growing up around. And he knows that the people are his. And so when he's going out and observing this, he sees a Hebrew being mistreated by an Egyptian and he ends up killing the Egyptian. And he's probably like, cool, I'm a hero. And then the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting and he's like, guys, why are you fighting? You're not each other's enemy. And the guys are like, uh, who are you to say anything? You killed a dude yesterday. And Moses is like, that is a problem, and I'm going to leave. And he does. He flees the land. He's like, I'm out. So he goes to this new land in Midian. He stops by a well. He's getting water. And these girls come up with their flock. And then these shepherds come up and try to bully the girls away. And Moses stands up and, like, drives the shepherds out and lets the girls get their flocks watered. And all the girls are probably like, oh, it's so romantic, he's a hero. So they come home and tell their dad, and their dad is like, why did you leave him there? So Moses comes into this man's house, marries this man's daughter, and it says he is content to dwell in the land. He's left Egypt, it's not his problem anymore, and he's good, he's good where he is. Meanwhile, back in Egypt, things are not good. Things are not good. So let's jump to the very end of chapter two, verse 23. And it says, during these many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. In the Hebrew, that word, um, that denote, they groaned because of their slavery. That translation of that word 
sort of has this connotation of such severe oppression that you can't do anything else but cry out. It is total agony. And it's saying that these cries of agony, these cries of oppression rose up to God. Verse 24 said, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. My very last semester of grad school, I, had a, I took a class on Exodus. It was just about Exodus. And we would translate, and we would talk about it. And we would translate, and we would talk about it. And when we got to this part in chapter two, as I was translating, it is so simple in the Hebrew. It's he heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew. And that has stuck with me ever since then. And if you're taking, if you're taking notes, write this down, because this is the first point. God is alive. He's alive. God hears, he remembers what he said, he sees, and he knows. And why is this significant, that God would be alive? We're in Egypt, remember? There are gods everywhere. Everywhere. There are gods over very specific things. The tiniest thing has a god. Everywhere. They, it's a land of idol worship. There are countless gods. There are all these images. There are all these statues. They are pretty to look at, but they're made of bronze. They're made of wood. They're covered in paint. They're nothing. They're ultimately hollow. So here we have this passage of God who sees and hears and knows and remembers. And it is a clear distinction between what is going on in Egypt because those gods are nothing. They're not alive. These are verbs of perception. These are verbs of awareness. God is alive. Side question, how often do we put our hope in things that are not alive? How often do we put our hope in things or we put our, our trust in things that cannot see us? and cannot hear us, and do not know us. How often does that happen? How often do we rely on success? How often do we rely on money? How often do we care about the size of our house? How often do we care about the things that are hollow and are not alive? That was just a side note, something to think about. The thing is, these things are ultimately hollow, but God is alive. There is no other God. There is nothing that compares because our God is a living God. And he is aware of the things that cause us to rest. He sees us, he hears us, he remembers us, and he knows us. And how do we know that? Because it's here. We know that because it's here. Because the same God who is at work in Egypt right now, in this story, is the same God that is at work here in our stories. God is alive. So God hears the cries of suffering from his people and he knows that it's time to act. It's time to act. So let's jump into Exodus 3, verse 1. 
It says, now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, and he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'm going to turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid, he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of, Egypt, of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to this land that he's been promised before. So this plan is forming. And this discussion ensues. So Moses, who was content to dwell where he was, to be out of the story, gets pulled back into the story because he's just minding his own business one day and sees this bush in the distance that is on fire but is not burning up and is basically like, I need to look at that because that's neat. So he goes and there he meets God. And God tells him, it's time, I'm acting, I'm gonna bring these people out of slavery. And this discussion begins and it unfolds over the next couple of chapters. Um, and we're not going to read it all, but you need to read it all sometime. You need to read all of Exodus. It's a good story. You need to know it. But we can't read all of it, so we're just going to hit the highlights. So God tells Moses what he's going to do. And Moses' first response is, uh, I can't do that because I'm nobody and that's not a good idea. And the Lord is like, you can do it. I'll be with you. You're going to be fine. So the next thing that Moses says, we're going to look at this. It's chapter 3, verse 13. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So Moses says, they're gonna wanna know your name because Moses, Moses knows Moses has grown up around all these gods. So if he comes in and says, hey, God wants me to do this, they're going to be like, uh, which God? So Moses is like, they're going to want to know your name. And God says, I am who I am. That is my name. And Moses is like, that's not really a name. <laughs> the literal translation of this, of I am that I am, the literal translation is I will be what I will be. That's the literal translation. I will be what I will be. So Moses says, what is your name? And basically God is saying everything. Number two, if you're taking notes, point number two. God is the God of every situation. Every situation. 
This interaction between Moses and the Lord is actually where we get the name Yahweh. It's actually where Yahweh comes from, is this conversation, this sort of unveiling of his name. Uh, and it's probably translated as the Lord in your Bible, um, but this becomes the divine name. Yahweh becomes the divine name. Yahweh becomes the name that is recognizable to the people, and it becomes sacred. It becomes sacred to speak. It becomes sacred to write, but it is a name that encompasses everything, everything, because he is a God who encompasses everything. So when he says, I will be what I will be, he's saying, I'm gonna be whatever is necessary. That's who I am. I'll be whatever is necessary. When he says, in verse 14, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. You think, I am, that doesn't say very much. But if you jump forward to the Gospel of John, and we have the ministry of Jesus sort of unfolding in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, if you wanna throw those up. He says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the vine. These are not veiled statements. Jesus is saying, I am. It is a direct tie to Exodus 3. It is no secret when he says these things. That's why people get riled up with the ministry of Jesus. They get riled up because he is saying, I am the divine name. I am the God who encompasses everything. I am part of that. People make the mistake of differentiating the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament, and that is a mistake because they are the same, and they are one. And Jesus proves that when he says, I am, I am. They're not veiled statements. He says, I am, the shepherd. I, am the, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the God of every situation. Every situation. So if you're writing notes, go back, cross out God, and rewrite it. Say, I am is alive. I am is the God of every situation. And we see other names of God unfold in the Old Testament. He is the God who provides. He is the God who sanctifies. He's the God of peace. He is the God who heals. He is God Almighty. He is Lord of hosts. He is master. He is savior. He is the God of every situation. He sustains all things, and in him, all things consist. Everything. He is in the details. He is in the small. He is in the large. He is all things. I think, I don't remember if I was in college or if it was after college, but I was having a discussion with a friend of mine who is not a believer, who's still not a believer. And we were talking about how we know, like how I know God is God. And I said, well, a small thing that sort of demonstrates his faithfulness to me is like, when I go shopping and I know that I'm looking for something very specific, and I know that I have a very specific budget, I always pray before I go shopping, always. And I say, Lord, you know what I have, you know what I need, help me find something. And it works every time, every time. 
And it's always a surprise, and it's always a blessing, and it's so fun. And she looked at me, stone-faced, and she said, God doesn't care about that. Somebody who does not even believe in God telling me what God does not care about. I was like, what? But she said, God does not care about that. And how often do we hear things like that? God has bigger things to worry about. God doesn't care about that. God is the God of every situation, or he is not God. Somebody agrees. <laughs> God is in the detail. Engage him. Because he is the God of every situation. Every situation. So back to the story. God is telling Moses to go and tell the people this stuff. He's telling them all kinds of things. That he's coming into their lives to rescue them and to bring them into an inherited land. And uh, that he's going to do all these great things. But there is an obstacle there's, an there's always an obstacle to the story, but there's an obstacle. So let's look at Exodus 3, 19 and 20. And God says to Moses, he's continuing this conversation, he says, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So something big is coming and God is prepping Moses for it. In the rest of chapter four, Moses is sort of arguing his unfitness to do this task at hand. He's got a lot of excuses. And it finally comes to the point where the Lord is like, discussion over, you're doing it. This is you, man. And Moses is like, can I have some help? And God is like, yeah, you can have your brother. So Aaron, who is Moses' brother, gets to, be, gets to help him. So Moses is not alone, he has a helper. Some, so Moses and Aaron meet up in the desert, and they're basically like, hey, great to see you. Hey, let's go back to Egypt. And we see this in chapter 4, verse 28. And Moses told Aaron all the words that the Lord, which, all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke the words of the Lord that Moses had spoken. And he did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So Moses and Aaron meet up in the desert. They're like, great to see you, bro, let's go. So they go back to Egypt, they gather the elders, and like, this is what the Lord is doing. And they show them signs, and the people are like, cool, this is gonna be awesome. Uh, but obstacle, thy name is Pharaoh. So in chapter five, verse one, it says, afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord of God, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let the people go. Short answer, Pharaoh says no. They come to him and they're like, hey, let the people go, and he's like, no. First of all, who is this slave God? Second of all, why should I know him? Thirdly, why would I do what he said? Also, why are you wasting my time? Also, why is nobody working? Pharaoh's got issues, and he's angry. So instead of being like, yeah, man, take your people and go, he's like, if you have time to come to me and ask to go away for a feast, 
then you have time to do more work. So he further oppresses the people. And, and whereas before, the people would be making like bricks with straw and other people would gather their straw and the Hebrews would make the bricks with the straw, Pharaoh says, you guys can gather your own straw and make your own bricks, but you have to make the same amount of number. You have to make the same amount. Like there can be no decrease. So it's more work for the people. And whereas before they were like, cool, God is doing something. They're like, we hate you. They're mad at Moses and Aaron because it has brought further oppression to their lives. And in Moses' mind, things are not going to plan. This is not how things were supposed to unfold. But let's jump to six, Exodus six, one through nine. And it said, but the Lord said to Moses, because nothing catches the Lord by surprise. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Stop there for a second. So not only, what the Lord is saying is not only is Pharaoh gonna let you go, he's gonna say, bye, get out. He's gonna shove you out of the land. Let's keep going. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. We'll stop there. Moses and Aaron take this message to the people, and the people don't receive it. It says they don't receive it because their spirits are broken because of their circumstances. So God is, is coming back in verse seven. If we look back at verse seven, God is basically saying, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. The Exodus story is the beginning of God making himself known to us. It is a story of rescue. It is a story of deliverance, and it is a story of relationship. So the third and final point is this. God is a God whose desire is to be known. That's the whole point. He wants to be known. So he's coming in and moving in these people's lives, and he's like, I'm gonna do these things for you, and you're gonna be my people, and I'm gonna be your God, and the people can't receive it because they're so broken. So they have to watch it unfold. And verse seven is the whole idea. That's the whole idea. You will be my people, I will be your God. And we get to know each other. God wants to be known. And we're actually going to stop there with verse seven, on the verge, just on the verge, being on the verge of something. Because that's the point that I wanna drive home. We're all on the verge of something. 
we're all on the verge of moving forward in this story. And I would encourage you to read it. You guys need to know the Exodus. You gotta know it. It's a cool story. But we're stopping on the verge because what we need to know in our own stories is that God is alive, that he is the God of every situation, and that in every circumstance, in every situation that we find ourselves on the verge of, he knows us and wants to be known by us. God is alive and present and he is God of every situation and he wants to be known and he sees us and he hears us and he remembers us and he knows us so that he can be our God and we can be his people. But how can we be his people if we don't know him? How can we hear his voice if we don't know what it sounds like? How can we see him at work in our lives if we don't know what we're looking for? How can we remember what he's done if we don't know what he's done? How can we know him if we don't make an effort, if we don't try? God reveals himself to us in two ways. He reveals himself to us through scripture, which is why we should know it, which is why we should dig into these stories and get to know God. And he reveals himself to us through Jesus. And if you claim to be one of his people, you should know both. It's not enough coming in here on Sunday mornings and listening to me or to Eric or to Justin or to whoever else is up here talking to you. That is not enough. You can't know God through us. You need to know God for yourself. You can learn more through us. That's why we're here, to help you learn more but you can't know God through us. And the object is to know God because he wants to be known and he wants to be God of your life and God of every situation. And there are obstacles. There are always obstacles to the story, remember? We just came out of a series called Unseen Realities and we talked about the reality of this enemy who seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. He seeks to confuse. He seeks to keep busy and overwhelms. He seeks to take the things that we know about God and twist them. It's easy. We have an enemy who comes in and twists God's knowing us into fear and shame. And he says, yeah, God knows your mind. He sees what you do. He sees everything that you do. He hears what you say, every ugly little thing, and he remembers all of it. And it's easy to let shame and fear take over in the midst of those circumstances. But guys, shame and fear are not from the Lord. They are not from the Lord. Conviction, yes, correction, absolutely. But fear and shame are never from the Lord. And you learn this as you get to know him that he comes from a place of loving correction, that he comes from a place of making you more like him. So when the enemy comes in and is like, yeah, God knows you, and it's ugly, what do we say? Not today, Satan. <laughs> no, for real. 
Not today, because the blood of Jesus covers it and the Holy Spirit keeps me going and nobody's got time for fear and shame. That is what you say and you keep going because nobody has time for that. Nobody has time for that. You keep going. And you get to say these things because you know him. And if you don't know him, you can get to know him. We get to know him. Talk to us. Ask questions. Read the Bible. Get to know Jesus. Get to know your community. We are here to help you. I know a lot of stuff about the Old Testament, and I know a lot of people who don't read it because they get confused, or they're like, this is weird. Yeah, it's weird. There are weird things that go on. Ask questions. Ask questions. We're here to help you. We're here to help you know God more because he is there for the knowing. He's worth knowing. I told you we were gonna stop there in the Exodus, but there are, I mean, there are cool things that happen, which is why you should read the story. Or if you like the Cliff Notes version, there are a couple movies that might be a little helpful. I mean, The Ten Commandments is pretty good. You've got Yul Brynner as like the greatest Ramses in the history of pharaohs. And also The Prince of Egypt is a really good telling of the story, but know what it says in the Bible, because God is making himself known. And cool things happen, and the plagues unfold, and then they exit in this really great way, and they, like, countless things happen. They get to the Red Sea. They're faced with the sea. The enemy is behind them because Pharaoh has sort of buyer's remorse, and he's like, why did I let those people go? I need to go after them. And he goes after them, and they're surrounded, and the sea's in front of them, and it's terrifying, and God moves. And we know that he's faithful because we see him be faithful. And we can rely on that faithfulness because we know him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 12, if you wanna throw that up. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's the end game, guys. That's the point, to know as we are known. What we're seeing in Exodus is just the beginning. It's just, it's just being on the verge of the rest of that story unfolding. And all we need to know as the rest of the story unfolds is that God is alive and he is present, that he is God over every situation, and that he knows us and wants to be known. That's the end game. Rob actually touched on this last week, but I wanna look at it again. It's Revelation 21, verse three and four. Revelation 21 is like the best chapter in Revelation because everything else is confusing and a little scary, and 21 is like the greatest. But Revelation 21, three and four says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither, there, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the, for the former things have passed away. Exodus was only the beginning. Does that sound familiar? He will be, he will be their God. They will be his people. It's 
the whole point. It's the whole point. So again, why all of this? Why all of this? Because God is the God of every situation and he is alive and he knows us. So that when we find ourselves on the verge of something, when we find ourselves sort of spiraling out of control, when we find ourselves sort of being overtaken by the mind, he can come in and say, I know you, I know where you are, I see the things that are affecting you, and I can take you out of it. I debated on sharing this, but I think, I think other people need to hear it. Um, so as I, I was, I, as I was talking before about having that time with the Lord and just talking about laying my anxieties before him, I started journaling, and I always, whenever I feel like the Lord is speaking to me, I journal what he says, because I want to have it to go back to and to read through it, and this is part of what I journaled, this is part of what he said to me, and he said, give me your anxieties, because I care for you. I am your shepherd, you are my responsibility. I see the things that overwhelm you, I know what you're afraid of, don't be afraid. Nothing takes me by surprise. I know where you are. I am the one who keeps you. Don't lose heart. Do you understand my love for you? It is tender. It is careful. I am your cover. I am your stronghold. I provide for you. I take you under my wing. You are surrounded. Do not grow weary. Keep going. And you might be asking, how do you know, how do you know that God said this to you? I know this because I know him. I know him. I know what he sounds like. I know, I know when he speaks to me. Jesus calls us his sheep and he said, my sheep, my sheep know my voice. And if we know him, we know, we know, I know him. I know he says, he has said these things. I know he has done these things because I know him. And you can too. You can. We're about to move into a final song. There, if you are on the prayer team, if you are elders, if you are staff, if you wanna come up here and kinda stand along the edges, if you want to be prayed for, if you want to be listened to, if you want to know God, if you want to, if you, if this is the first time you're hearing about it and you wanna know more, you're like, yeah, it's a little weird, but I'm interested. Come up and talk to somebody. Come up and be prayed for. If you've been in this game for a while and you still don't know the Lord well, come up and be prayed for. Our job is to help you live everyday life with Jesus. And that's what we wanna do. You can know God. And we wanna help you do that. So I would encourage you that as they begin to sing, you either do business with the Lord in your seat or you come up and get prayed for because it's time to know the Lord for yourself, what he's done, who he is, and what he's going to be in your life.